Welcome to Real History, shows what you know about history. On this podcast, we talk about historical movies and television, anything that claims to be based on a true story, and we check how bad did they mess it up? What was life actually like during that time period? Well, that's why we're here, to separate the real history from the real history. My name is Jacob Burrows, and I don't know anything about history. And my name is Michael Tynan, and I'm delighted that we will have another Mel Gibson entry this year in the Mel Awards for Crimes Against Cinema. <laughs> and my name is Mark, and I'm having a point. Very good. And I think we should emphasize their crimes against historical accuracy, right? Because cinema... Yeah, arguably, yeah, you're right. You're right. He makes good films. Like, that's the thing we always come back to with Mel Gibson. And we're here to talk about the pivotal historical Mel Gibson film. Honestly, like, probably the, the standout of his career, the one from which all the others sprung, it feels like. Definitely. Braveheart. Um, you're probably all familiar with Braveheart. I wrote a one-sentence one summary, um, but, you know, you get, you, you all know the plot. But anyway, my one-sentence summary. Mel Gibson is a farmer who definitely doesn't want to fight for independence, but when they mess with his family, they've gone too far, man. So he spearheads, spearheads a grassroots revolution, which might lead to his demise, but also to freedom. Excellent, yeah, yeah. It's also, um, I think... If we were doing the movie The Patriot, that's the same one sentence summary for that. I movie. was thinking that as I was writing it. Yeah, yeah. it's. I, I think he's. I think he hit upon a formula here of Ray Fart and said that worked. Let me do that again, but this time it's in America. <laughs> I, I take your one hundred percent right, by the way, lads. About you know how he makes good films, like because no matter what you say, you think of Ray Fart and you think of the line at the end, freedom. You know, <laughs> and even though as we'll see it's all horseshit uh, it doesn't matter it's he's able to pull you in emotionally in his films mel and we've seen that uh from apocalypto um his other work the patriot um several of his films they all tell a compelling story even if they play fast and loose with the truth all the time <laughs> putting it mildly yeah and we should say up top that our season one episode on Outlaw King should be seen as a companion piece to this one, right? We did a swerve in season one. We're like, we're the new hip podcast. We're not going to do the obvious thing and talk about Braveheart. We're going to talk about Outlaw King. But it's very much the same uh, era, right? So we yes. get into a lot of the same overall, like what was going on in the world stuff in that one as well. So in this episode, we'll be able to hone in a bit more on William Wallace specifically because he's such a small part of Outlaw King, but obviously such a big part of Braveheart. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a sort of an interesting one because the two movies can work in some ways in parallel, but in another way, Outlaw King is, is kind of a sequel. You know, it's, it's, it, it starts around the same time, but finishes several years after the point at which... I think Wallace in Outlocking, one of William Wallace's limbs... That's uh, where he's uh, displayed, make yeah. A, make a, make yeah. an appearance. I don't know if he got credited in the film. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, so he was technically in both films. Yeah. William yeah, Wallace's true. arm as himself. Yeah, yeah and of course, uh, the... Uh, the king or the would-be king of mm. Outlaw King is in this film as yes. well, and we can talk about the differences between the two. But, um, Michael, do you have some of the basic facts of the film, just in case no one's heard of it? It's been a while. Like, it's 1995 this came out, you know? So, you know, we were all young children at that stage, you know? Um, he looks well. He looks very much the same now, I have to say. Uh, weirdly so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's because his face already, I don't know, it had already set into its Well, that's what happens shape. when you do, do a deal with... Uh, the devil, you know, <laughs> you tend to not age, you know, like Dorian Gray kind of character. Yeah, but, there's a painting of him somewhere yeah. in an attic that's dramatically <laughs> aging, yeah. Uh, but just to refresh your memories, it's nearly three hours long. Like, it's 178 minutes. Is it really? Yeah, and I feel like he just did it under three hours, 100. He specifically did 178 minutes so people couldn't say, oh, Mel, you did another three-hour movie or something right, like that, right. you know, but... Um, yeah, it came out in 1995. Um, it was budget of 70 million at the time, made over 213 million. So rocketed Mel Gibson's career. Mm. After this, this I suppose is the movie that later allowed him to do other projects, such as I suppose The Passionate of Christ, which probably would have never been made if it wasn't 
Oh, if he wasn't Mel attached, Gibson, yeah. yeah, no chance, probably. No uh, chance, set, yeah. we, same for Apocalypto, you yeah, know, the Patriot as well. It's kind of a niche movie, uh, entirely in, um, you know, subtitled, yeah. you know. So all of these, in a way, Mel, Mel's success in Braveheart, let him do some other interesting projects, at least. Is this his directorial know. debut, this film? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I know he didn't want, he w- always intended to direct it, but he Did didn't he? actually intend to star as the lead role. Oh, wow. Okay. But he was pressured the by studio the studio. made him do it because yeah. he was a name, right? Because he'd, he'd been famous for what? Like Lethal Weapon and Mad Max before this, right? They would have been sort of his... Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. By, that was his earlier career, yeah. yeah he okay. was an action hero and he is an action hero in this film as well. Like, yeah, You know, like yeah. uh, at the end of the day, he plays an action hero and, you know, he does it well. <laughs> his uh, his directorial debut was The Man Without a Face in 1993, which I had never heard the of. Man Without Shame, it should be renamed. Yeah. <laughs> but okay, so, so this was his second. Uh, so two film years he prior. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And big, it, big movie to take on as a, as a second film, I would say, as a director. You know, definitely. in terms of budget and everything. Uh, it was written by Randall Wallace, uh, who later went on to do a few other historical films as well, um, and it was filmed very close to here it was filmed in scotland some of it but uh, most of it was actually filmed in ireland uh, or very close to where we are today in the wicklow mountains uh, you can still when you go through the wicklow gap today there's signs showing you where braveheart was filmed and this type of thing and uh, on the curra of kildare which is this big flat plain in the center of ireland if you're not familiar with it, where we generally do lots of horse racing and it's also where most irish people learn how to drive uh, because it's flat, and the only thing that's going to get in your way is the odd sheep. Yeah. Uh, so for context, that's where. Apart from that, yeah, it made it. It actually won five Oscars. People forget this. Yeah. You know, I was astonished to hear that, and I feel like I knew it did well, but I didn't think it won five Oscars. Yeah, no, and and the big ones like Best Picture, Best Director. Wow. Um, and I suppose over time, if you look at the aggregate score in Rotten Tomato, it comes in at 76%. So, you know, it's a, it's a B. <laughs> uh, but I it's would, a high B. It's a, it's a high B. B. It's, it's a, good a high B. B. Yeah. And the audience score is even far higher. So it's, uh, it definitely got uh, sold a lot of cinema tickets, you know. So on, on that basis, let, let me ask both of you, like, did, did, you, did you like this movie? Did you think this was a well-made movie? I yeah I love this taking movie. The I, I, taking if, if it, you know taking all the historical stuff out I love this movie. Okay. Yeah. Simply you, because it is a great action movie and it's it really draws you in and you actually really really want William Wallace to win. Yeah. You yeah, know yeah. Uh, taking everything else out of it I think yeah uh, it's really really well made. Yeah, it's hard to watch it now and not just see Mel Gibson um kind of at this point but mm. i think as a film yeah it's pretty solid it's got a very it's got a kind of a 90s vibe to how it's bit. laid out and put together and everything but the foundation as as i've said a dozen times with uh, Mel Gibson but like the, the foundation is there it's relatively well filmed. It's got a budget, so yeah, I think overall it is a it is a good film. Yeah, I, I remember I, I loved it as a kid for sure. I, th- I think it was it was a big thing in when, with, with kids my age in school and stuff. Everyone yeah, and Braveheart, I think it know? got it would have got a whole generation in, interested in history, even though you know obviously uh, it wasn't real history, but it was got a whole generation who maybe hadn't grown up looking at a lot of historical movies, mm, uh, sure. apart from like. The War of the Rose and stuff like this yeah, that came out yeah, yeah. in the mid-90s, you know. Um, Robin Hood, that type of thing. That was the kind of stuff that was going on at this time. Yeah. So I think it got a whole generation interested in um, historical movies. Did wonders for the Scottish tourism industry, too. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it probably it probably deserves its place there for that alone, right? I mean, it's, it's yeah. done well for the Scottish economy. For and the arguably the independence movement, mm. too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very much so, which is definitely interesting, and we can get into all the different aspects of it. But let's uh, let's reset the stage of where is this taking place? When is it taking place? Uh, obviously, everyone who watches it, you know, the English are there. We hate the English. Like it's a Mel Gibson film. It's very black and white of yes. like yeah, yeah. bad guys, good guys, etc. But what is actually the situation at the start of the film, or winding back from that? So. The the first historical mistake in the movie is in the first four seconds. <laughs> the it opens uh, and says 1280. Now, it's not 1280. Okay? And the reason I say that is it, this movie is taking place um, 
after the death of a man called John Balliol. Now, John Balliol was the king, or was the king of Scotland. Now, John Balliol, uh, like, he doesn't die until well after, well after twelve eighty. What's happening in Scotland is the previous king, Alexander the Third, died in twelve eighty six. I mentioned this in Outlaw King. He fell off his horse, and his only heir was his daughter Margaret, uh, who was married to the king of Norway. Now, Margaret uh, died four years later, so that left the Scots with no king, and with several claimants to the throne. As we spoke about Outlaw King, the Commons, the Balliols, uh, the Bruce. Commons and the Balliols are related, so the Commons claim kind of comes from the Balliol claim, and then the Bruce is a slightly more distant claim. But basically, there's 15 families, all who have some claim on the Scottish throne. And in order to sort this out and prevent a civil war, the King of England, Edward I, is invited in in a spectacular own goal in Scottish history. He's invited yeah. in. To mediate, right? To mediate, yeah. And this is referred to as the Great Cause. Now, in the Great Cause, Edward settles on John Balliol as uh, King of Scotland. And the Scots kind of go, all right, well, fair enough, his claim is pretty good, so we'll, we'll accept John Balliol. However, there are there are some uh, just some uh, small print in this, and the small print is that Balliol has to recognise Edward as the overlord, as his as his uh, feudal overlord. So, in essence, what he's doing is he's sort of submitting this, the crown of Scotland to the crown of England, which obviously doesn't go sit very well with the Scottish nobles, who you know they're kind of think mm, we don't like the idea of this. Now, this kicks off into into actual uh, into actual um, sort of violence after Edward starts levying taxes on the Scots and then also starts conscripting some of their men into his army. Because you must remember at this point, England is, I mean, pretty much the whole way through the Middle Ages is a war with France. There's always a war going on in France. The English love having a war in France. So he needs taxes and he needs men. Um, So he starts conscripting Scottish men. The Scots, Scottish nobles obviously don't like this because it's their men who are going and it's their money that's being taxed. So they pressure John Balliol to, um, to uh, kind of rebel against, against Edward's uh, overlordship. So the Scots decide, uh, we're not doing that. So they, uh, they, invade, <laughs> they invade the north of England, the Scots. Um, and it's, uh, it does, it, look, it's just, you know, I won't go into the exhaustive detail. It doesn't go very well. Like, the, the Scottish army is a bit chaotic. It doesn't really doesn't really work very well. The English army marches north, and uh, they give them a hiding. Um, and in the process, Edward destroys a town called Berwick-upon-Tweed, uh, which is, I think is now in England, but has changed back and forth. It's right on the border. Yeah, Maybe it's in Scotland and their football team plays in England. I can't remember. It's something like that anyway. It's not right on the border there. But it gets, it gets really wrecked, uh, Berwick. And um, uh, King John is, is, uh, is captured uh, and, and uh, jailed. Essentially, now this happens in twelve ninety six, so the movie saying it opens in twelve eighty yeah. is all after this, but somehow it's twelve eighty. So they're off by sixteen years just to start. Now I know you might say, "Ah, well, it's only sixteen years, and this was eight hundred years." But like, I mean, you're writing a movie about William Wallace, and 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 the guys writing this movie know that it's not twelve eighty. So why are they doing that? Like the audience, the writer doesn't... of the movie is even a Wallace, apparently. I mean, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know this is wrong. So why why are you doing that? Remind me, is the first scene kind of uh, young William Wallace discovering mm. all the corpses yeah. of all the Scottish nobles? Yeah, basically. Mm. Yeah, and so did that happen? Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, there would have been there would have been uh, a, a large number of Scottish nobles sort of uh, murdered or or you know imprisoned. Like a lot of Scot- Scottish nobles. Um, when the English counterattacked, were imprisoned, including a, a very prominent uh, lord in the in, from the from the north of Scotland called uh, De Murray. He gets he, he's jailed. When I say jailed, they send him to the Tower of London. You know, along with a lot of other nobles. Um, and the idea there from the English king is he'll keep the sons in line in Scotland by jailing their jailing their, um, their parents. Parents, yeah. yeah. And you see it a bit in Outlaw King as well, where he's like, everyone must understand that this this submission is final. So King John has been removed from Scotland and Edward is basically saying, I'm the king now. And Longshanks, Edward, King Edward, like he was, 
a seasoned campaigner. Absolutely. You know, yeah. like yeah. He, I mean the wars in France had hardened this guy. Like he, he but he also had gone to war in, in Wales. There'd been uprisings in England against him. He was a battle hardened. He was a crusader too. Yes he was, yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. So he was you know, he had got around and I suppose he would have seen Scotland as his back as his backyard that he yeah. need, that he by right could control. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And and th- some of the Scottish moves against Edward, like around uh, the time when John Balliol is King of Scotland, some of the Scottish nobles are are making an attempt to form an alliance with France. And if you're Edward, like you just you're outflanked, and you just can't have that, you know. So that's that's part of I would suggest part of his sort of his need to put down the Scots. But he is known in history. He's called Longshanks because he was very tall. But he's also known in history as the Hammer of Scots. So he's a, he's a pretty yeah uh, pretty brutal guy. This, this I guy. would say in the film, I don't know what you like. Talk, he is very one dimensional, but yes, I yeah. still think he's a really memorable evil king. No matter what you think, yeah, no, he's very like the, the portrayal is good, but it is as you say, it's a character rather than a person. You know, it's uh, it's a pa- Patrick McGowan. I presume he's passed on now because he was at a he was a fair age when he was he no spring chicken, this. yeah, yeah. and even dies in the movie, of course. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah, uh, but yeah, no, I I, I do think that whoever picked the characters or who picked the actors to play these characters, you know, they did a really good job because they are mm. all memorable in their own way. Even uh, Princess Isabella, all that. You, 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 they do stay with you years later. You oh, know? definitely, yeah. for sure. The Princess is Isabella, who's mentioned in the movie, or who's in the movie quite a lot, um, I just will point out. I mean, she's about nine years old when the events take place, and she's also not in England or Scotland. She's in France. Uh, so the whole affair with uh, no. William Wallace feels even less credulous than than it does in the film. I mean, yeah, it's just, just no basis in reality for that at all. Like you know, I mean, like understandably in a movie point of view, you have to have the love interest, all of, all of that kind of carry on, but there's no basis in reality for any of that. <laughs> in fact, Wallace was never married. Uh, all right, so not even the the wife that was. Uh, Ritually sacrificed on the altar of story structure in order to give him motivation. (laughs) So here's what's happened with that. Uh, One of the sort of sources for the Wallace myth rather than Wallace history is is a a poem that was written a couple of centuries later. And actually the cultural memory of Wallace is really owes more to the poem than to facts. And the movie probably owes more to the poem. It was written by a guy called Blind Harry and he, he he did this poem anyway. And in the poem, Wallace does have a wife. And I think she's... I don't think she's called Mwirin, though. I think she's called Margaret. But anyway, it doesn't really matter. She wasn't real anyway. so It doesn't really <laughs> matter. Um, so we're in a basically a situation where, where the Scottish king is, is, is he's gone. The Scots have lost uh, their invasion of England. And Edward is setting about uh, running roughshod over, over Scotland, essentially. And it's in this context where, where Wallace's rebellion, uh, or the rebellion that Wallace is involved in, I should say, where that sort of springs up from. Um, so I don't know, will I, will I go into who Wallace really was? or Yeah, I suppose. Like, I mean, do we want to talk about uh, other general things, like how the system works with uh, fealty to the overlords? Uh, I mean, we've done that in other episodes as well. Uh, yeah. There's Prima Nocta. We definitely need to get into that. Yeah. So this, uh, yeah. So so the we're in, we're in feudal Europe. So, I mean, um, the... One thing the movie does is it, it sort of talks in nationalistic terms. Uh, Which we know from previous episodes, if you're a regular listener, this is not a concept that's really been developed yet. It just doesn't point. exist yeah. in Scotland. People know they're Scottish ethnically, but I mean, the idea of a, a nation state isn't really a thing at this point in history, you know. For most people, your village was your world. Yeah. You know, yeah. apart from the odd time you were called to go and fight for someone like William Wallace, you know. Yeah. But apart from that, you're... you you didn't tend to move very far at that time, you know? No, people are, people are, are by and large, pretty, pretty ignorant of the world around them. They're not educated, by and large. Like, the peasant classes wouldn't be literate, necessarily. You know, even the language of their, of their religion was Latin, like they didn't even necessarily understand what the priests were saying. You know, and the priests were, other than the nobles, were the only really educated class. And Wallace is portrayed in this movie as a, just a, just a really dirt poor subsistence farmer living in essentially a hut which is fairly offensive frankly to yeah. what Scotland was like at that time it just, it just like the way the Scots are portrayed wearing kilts and being filthy and, and living in living in mud huts now that you know people by and large they'd be dirty compared to modern standards of course but the Scots wouldn't look notably different to the English 
Yeah. When you see the two armies come up against each other and the English are all organized in their in their chainmails, that's also not true, but like it wouldn't have been organized to that extent. But the way the Scots were kitted out would have been very, very comparable. Like I mean they're not these are not Stone Age warriors. Like <laughs> they sort of look like ancient peoples in this and movie. As, have we, as we've talked about before, like a lot of these were just Norman cousins. Yes, you know, whether yeah, you yeah. were Certainly the lords. in England or in Scotland, you were more than likely related to your neighbours across the world, and they were all originally, you know, Norman families. Yeah, them, yeah. You know? Certainly, certainly the, the the lords who were who were uh, who got a bad time in this movie, they are, um, yeah, they a lot of them would have had holdings of land in England as well as in Scotland. Certainly, relatives, cousins, as you say, and would have been intermarried, and yeah, it's basically not black and white, as Mel puts it. There's a defined boundary. This is Scotland. This is England. You know, this yeah, is, it's 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 much looser than that. There were kingships in both, but there was everyone had a there was a finger in each pie, kind of thing, for sure. Yeah. Um, and it's important to say that I mean, while Wallace wasn't a uh, wasn't a one of the sort of lords paramount, he wasn't sort of one of the big regional lords. He he wasn't a peasant. William Wallace. Uh, his father was a reasonably minor noble, and William Wallace was the second son, so it didn't st- didn't stand to inherit anything. Now, there's there's conflicting uh, reports, and there's 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 not great detail in terms of in terms of his past, but it does there is suggestions that he was actually an outlaw before all of this kicked off. Mm. Uh, there is some suggestions that he was actually in Edward's army as a mercenary right. and had fought in Wales. That and wouldn't so, fit into Mel's narrative. No, certainly wouldn't. Blue. But it would fit into how Wallace would have an understanding of English battle tactics because he'd have some level of familiarity with it. There is a record of him and another guy uh, stealing beer <laughs> at some point in Scotland. So there is a suggestion that he's an outlaw. Now, you might think, well, that's maybe that's just people trying to have a go at him. But if he's the second son of a minor noble, he doesn't stand to inherit. And what typically would happen with, with the second child um, is that they would be trained to fight. They would become some sort of a either like a man at arms or a knight or crusader crusader <laughs> even for sure yeah in this time period for sure um so it, it it stands to reason that he would know how to fight there's a scene in it where his uncle comes along and he's like i'll teach you to use your mind before you use the sword that's all brian cox i think brian yeah. cox plays yeah, the uncle yeah. yeah who is always wordy you and know, it's a nice it's a nice scene that he's a fine actor but it just happened like it's just not it's just <laughs> it's just it's just not remotely uh, what do you mean which part is unlikely about him teaching his nephew to well, that you'd, a guy will come along and say, well, I, "I'll teach you. I'll teach you to, to think, and I'll bring you to Rome." And I you know, right, just yeah. no, just no, not that's like it's very, it's highly unlikely that a guy like that would just not know his uncle, and his uncle would be this like wealthy lord. Like it just, it just doesn't make sense. And it, it, it's, it's trying to. It, I think the movie's doing that because it's trying to portray Wallace as a, a noble savage. You know, he's decided to go back to his savage roots, despite being yeah, despite being uh, educated in the noble sense. You know, he speaks Latin and French in the movie badly and all that, but he, but he doesn't speak. Yeah, is he supposed to be a Highlander, like, or is that later on? And we we meet the Highlanders. I forget how it's presented in the so. film. He's not. He's not. No, Wallace is not a Highlander. No. Uh, Wallace is from the is from the from the Lowlands, I think. And am I correct in that, like, the Highlands is basically just most of north of scotland yeah so the highlands is is a is a like literally just called the highlands because it's just topologically like it's just yeah. it's just literally just lands are just high up in the air a lot of, lot of hills and mountains and stuff the highlands are uh a, a, an interesting an interesting part there's a there's a part in the movie where uh somebody says to wallace the highlanders are coming down on their own accord like the, the clans are coming down from the from the north now much like the northern lords in England were always a bit of a pain for the king in England, the Highlanders in Scotland were always a bit of a pain for the king in Scotland. Yeah. You know, they just were just, they're just famously not following the rules, you know? A guy I mentioned earlier, uh, De Moray, who was put in prison, he had been dispatched by a previous Scottish king to become the overlord of, of the Highlands to try and put a bit of, bit of order on the situation, try and put them in a bit of shape. And he did it really successfully without sort of massacring people you know and the, so the highland clans would would have had a um, some level of affinity with the, the moray family and and, and uh, fealty to them uh, in a legal sense but they they emotionally would have had some kind of loyalty to him so when de moray was, was imprisoned his son uh andrew de moray became the de facto leader of the northern the, the northern part the highlands of scotland essentially 
He's not in the movie at all, Andrew Damore. He's not in a, a Outlaw, Outlaw King either. But he's, a, he's, a, he's an absolutely fascinating and, and highly vital uh, uh, character in, in this period of Scottish history. It's him who takes back the land in the north of Scotland from the English crown. He retakes his home castle from the English forces. And he goes all around the Highlands, taking back castles one at a time. Much like you see the Bruce doing in, mm. in Outlaw King. That's the Moray doing that in the north. So when Wallace has his big battle with the Highland clans, it's the Moray who brings them down from the, from the north. Right. And some historians suggest that the tactics used in this great battle was actually Andrew de Moray and not William Wallace. So he's, yeah, so he's, he's de Moray for you, Mark. He's an unsung hero, really. Massive. Yeah, and yeah massive. Basically, a lot of the deeds that are attributed in the film to say Wallace are actually the Some work of, of de Moray. Some of that is de Moray, yeah. yeah. Okay. And it, it, like, I understand why he's unsung in, in a sense, because he, he's from the high nobility. He's a very powerful lord, and it doesn't speak as well to the story as a, as, as a peasant. Now, as I said, Wallace is not a peasant, but he was a minor noble. He wasn't a, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have had the ability to rally troops in the mm. way De Moray did. But when he did rally troops, Wallace was one of the, was one of the leaders. Right. Um, and the reason for that is, uh, Wallace, um, was, was sort of like the leader of a gang, of, a gang of sort of outlaws. Guys who had been disinherited, um, presiding against Edward. Um, and he sort of had this like rabble which he kind of does in the movie. You know, he's mm. got the Brendan, Brendan Gleeson's character. Hamish. Hamish, yeah. yeah. I mean, th- those guys aren't real, but I mean, they, they, there were people like that, I, I think, who were Wallace's sort of right hands. And, and he, he sort of became, Wallace sort of became famous because he was carrying out guerrilla attacks against English forces in the area. Now, was he doing that for national reasons or was he doing that because he just said, this is chaotic and I can kind of, I can get a bit of wealth here. Or because his wife was murdered. Yeah, not true either. Like, um, so uh, you know, he became sort of famous because they they came across an English uh, sort of a fort, Wallace and his men, and they sacked it. They 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 burned it down, killed all the English soldiers in it, and the word that he had done that spread throughout Scotland. That's concurrent with De Moray taking back the castle. So Mm. if you're Andrew De Moray and you notice this guy in the south is out there rallying the locals. And I've got the Highland clans. If I bring my army down, or if I bring my men down, we form an army. If we can beat the English, the nobles will side with us. Mm. And then we've got, and then we've really, as he says in the movie, are you ready for a war, boys? <laughs> when the Highlanders are coming down, you know? So that, that's essentially what happens. Wallace's legend sort of spreads. And I think that's kind of where his fame is. He's like Robin Hood or Joan of Arc, or, you know, he's just kind of dashing outlaw hero. Sacrificial hero as well. The Messiah. Yeah, yeah and he has the Messiah because he again. dies later yeah. on. Uh, but this is not a guy who ever worked fields. You know, he's not, this, is not, he's, this man's not a peasant. Mm. Um, so his gang attack this garrison. Uh, it goes pretty well. They take it over, take their weapons, take their gold. They free whoever's been, whoever's been captured. Uh, Dumore, um his actions are probably more substantial in terms of if you're the English crown, his actions are more substantial because he's, he's physically taking castles. Um, all of which is obviously infuriating the English king. Demore brings the Highlanders down and uh, they link up with Wallace's growing sort of peasant army or his growing army of malcontents. Um, and they link together. And the, f- the big battle in the movie is the Battle of Stirling, they call it in the movie. Now that, that, that sort of wound me up a little bit. That they call it the Battle of Sterling. Um, Wait, this movie wound you up a little bit. No, I couldn't tell. Yeah. <laughs> is there something missing, Mark, from the Battle of Sterling? So the Battle of Sterling, in reality, is known as the Battle of Sterling Bridge, and the reason it's called Sterling Bridge is because the actual physical bridge is vitally important to how the Scots won the battle. From the commanding position that Demore and Wallace had established in uh, the north of Scotland, Sterling bridge was was sort of the access point into the north from the south and it was kind of the only access point mm. in and they knew that and the Murray knew that and he knew how English uh, how English armies lined up, how they marched how they, how they uh, deployed and they used the fact that the bridge would work as, as a focal point it would funnel the troops in, it was a narrow bridge it was about, you could maybe go three across three men across, across it mm. at most um, and so what they did is they, they lay in wait on in, in the forest just on the other side of the bridge and as half the English army came across they attacked from both sides and they massacred the English army and it's just it's just fantastic victory and it's all true they did do that it was a fantastic victory 
the movie portrays it like it's a series of armoured English soldiers arrive up and a bunch of Scottish fellas carrying sticks uh, in kilts, which they also didn't wear in this time period, by the way, the Scots. Uh, they all just arrive up completely disorganised and will just run at each other. That's just not how battles like that happen. It's, it was just... And like, they seem to win on the basis that Wallace gives a good speech. Like, it's just... It's just... It's it just, is quite oh. funny because modern historical movies do try to show... Maybe I'm wrong on this, but I feel like they do try to show more balance inside in terms of like one side is equally um, it suffers from war as as much as the other. Whereas in this one, you kind of don't see many Scottish people die at all, except for a couple of central characters at the Ooh. end. Like it literally is like a Scotsman, and you know, uh, I'm not. I've very much uh, in favor of the Scots uh, gaining their independence, but. In the film, it very much is like a Scotsman is worth five Englishmen. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. and he just wallops <laughs> them, and, you know, there's no issue. He's got well. ten lives. With, with a stick. They're not even real weapons or anything. They're just sticks. You exactly, know? Just... you know. Uh, so I did find that, it, looking back on it, it, it does sort of stand out with you, whereas when you're about ten and you're watching it, you just, yeah, you know, of course, you, you don't you know. You buy every anything, yeah. But, I mean, the English army that comes across the bridge, you've about 10,000 English. So it's very, very big. For the time period, it's a big army. The Scots have about six. Um, but, you know, as I've said countless times in, on this podcast, like when it comes to these kinds of hand-to-hand combat, where you fight is nearly as important as what you're fighting with. They use the geography. And the bridge funnels the troops, it does down the numbers, and then they attack from both sides. And it's a bit of a, like, it's a, it's a big route. Like the, the English army is, it's bad. Fella, guys are falling off, the, falling off the bridge. Some of them are trying to swim back, but their armor's weighing them down. A lot of English troops drown in the river. Um, it's 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 pretty brutal, and it and it stops for now, uh, the English from enforcing their power in Scotland. So it's it's it is this great big victory. Yeah. One um, one sort of uh bad point for the Scots is Moray dies in this battle. Um, so the great sort of other great hero, that the unspoken hero, he dies here, and maybe that's why he's not. Uh, mm. You know, there's no poems about him. Yeah, but there should be. I, like you know, he's 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 been done a bad disservice by the movie here. Mark, when you're retired, you should write a biography on. Well, Andrew Demar- yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think so. Yeah, I can't see yeah. any publisher wanting that or anyone <laughs> buying it. Frankly, but yeah, um, we'll put it on, on Patreon for real history. Sometime. Yeah, Wallace um, follows up. He, he he invades the north of England. Um, now, in the movie, they portray this as he leads this great Scottish army, and they go down and they sack York. Now, yes. He doesn't get anywhere near York. Like York is in the north of England, but what you have to understand is when people when people talk about the north of England, it's most of England. They're talking about. Yeah. Like there's what we call the north, and then there's the northeast, which is further north. Okay. So there, so it, it, like York is is a uh, at the time very very important city. It's it's a historically it's a walled city. Yeah. Yeah. Which is important. But like, I mean, this yeah. go, this was a, I mean it was a Roman fort. Like the Vikings took it over and renamed it Jorvik, and that's where York comes from. But it's a long-standing, well-defended, very difficult to take city. A bunch of Scottish lads with sticks are not taking this. Thing. Yeah, you'd need siege weapons, wouldn't you, man? Absolutely, yeah. you'd need trebuchets. You'd need you'd need mounted units. You'd need you'd need organized archers, all that stuff. So when Prince Edward in the film uh, doesn't send reinforcements uh, because he doesn't think they're going to take the city, he would have been right, in fact. Um, he, in fact, would have been absolutely correct. Mm. Yeah. Wallace's uh, army would, would have, I, I would suggest, zero chance of taking York. <laughs> so what were they doing? Just kind of raiding They were doing what you, do, what, you, what you actually do in that time period. You, 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 you pillage the, the, the towns on the... On the English side of the border. They didn't go anywhere near as far south as York. They, w- they wouldn't, because they would have known our army hasn't got the organization, money, or supply lines to do something like that. But what we can do is we can destroy all the local towns, take all their wealth, and all of that kind of stuff. And it goes really quite well for Wallace. So when he's done doing that, he comes back and he is knighted by the nobles. And they show this in the movie, although they show it after the battle in the movie. In, in reality, it was later. He comes back and they knight him and he's named High Steward of Scotland, which is the Guardian of Scotland, which is yeah. sort of a sort of commander-in-chief of the army type of thing. Um, now, that is true. The way it happened, maybe not so much. But, yeah, the, 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 the office of Guardian becomes Wallace's at that point, which is, even if he's a minor noble, it's pretty good going. Yeah. 
And at this point in the film, we start to see a lot more interactions with Robert the Bruce, who we talk about in detail mm. in Outlooking. Um, but maybe briefly, what do you think about his portrayal here and interactions with William Wallace? It's, it's a very, it's a curious one for me because because they 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 do him a bit of a disservice. I think now I'm not I'm not going to suggest that Robert Bruce wasn't a man of his time and and, and didn't uh, you know do some fairly heinous stuff in his day. And we talk about it. Uh, check out our other episode. What he did in the church. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, yeah. That's yeah, bears mentioning all right. But this idea that he was a, a noble, I think, I think maybe it's fair to say that he's a, he's a noble with a, with a shot at the crown who isn't sure what to do. I think that's probably fair. But the idea that there's a scene in a movie where Wallace comes in and he gives this big emotional speech and he's like, uh, "Um, the pe- what was it? The people will follow you." If you just lead, and so would I. He, sa- he says to, to Bruce, which I think is the movie's way of saying, this guy is going to be the leader of Scotland, and he's a great guy. And then he has this thing where he's like, unite the clans. Bollocks. And he says to him, uh, we've never had, or you and I will have something we've never known before, a free and independent country. Now, that's just flagrantly inaccurate. Both of those men were, were lived in an independent Scotland. The kingdom of Scotland. The kingdom of Scotland. <laughs> well, like, I mean, it's, it hasn't been conquered by England I mean it's you know there's it's, they're, ju- they're just off by decades like the way, the way they're discussing it the second point to that is the, the, the modern concept of national identity it just doesn't exist there I know it's hard for people now to sort of accept that and it's something whenever I'm talking about history or, or somebody asks me a question about history or whatever I, I, I'm always a pains to point this out like our modern understanding of what a nation state is it, it's it, it's really really quite recent like it, the idea of an English national identity and Scottish national identity—they're not really, they're not really things at this yeah. point. Um, so that that whole kind of that is not something that would have swayed Bruce. What would sway to Bruce is if I go and get myself crowned here, do I have a shot at it? And if the answer is yes, that's why he does it. Mm. You know, let let let's be real. I mean, he's not—he's a feudal overlord. He didn't give a shit about the peasants, and you might even say Wallace probably doesn't give a shit about the peasants either. He's seeing the chaos as a way to advance his own life. So speaking of this, what actually happened at Falkirk? Uh, in the film, Robert the Bruce is fighting on Longshanks' side. Yeah, so in reality, the Bruce wasn't even there. Right. It's just not, it's just not true at all. Like, he, just, he just wasn't there. Um, the, the army, the, the uh, English army comes back, basically. They've lost this. So this, just for context, this is the... The battle at the end of the film. This is sort of where it all kind of. Uh, no, I think this is middle of the film. Maybe. Yeah, it's it's right? it's not. It's, There's it's, a few battles. <laughs> it's sort of the start of the third act. Maybe is it? Yeah, yeah. Because but they do the guerrilla warfare kind of after yeah, this. Yeah. Um, I think. But yeah. So the guerrilla warfare is something that he, that is, that he is carrying out the whole time. I mean that that's yeah that is that is accurate and that, that and that that's. You know, not unique to Scotland. That's how what would have happened in in, in most medieval situations. But the uh, the Battle of Falkirk, uh, the English send up another army, um, uh, and uh, the Scots, as, as they were, ride out to meet them. Um, it goes really badly. They fight them in an open field, which is a bad move for a Scottish army that hasn't got the organization. Remember, this is Wallace's sort of army of malcontents, peasants. You know, th- there isn't a there isn't a necessarily a big load of nobles now were the nobles there yeah were there not all of them but there were nobles there about 200 heavy horse turn up for for this for this battle with the scots now for context the english have 2000 heavy horse in the movie it's pointed out or it's, it's portrayed like the nobles betrayed wallace and they ride off and they go oh, we're not we're not you know, we're going to ride away, we're gonna, and, they, and they just as if they took a bag of gold as if they took a bag of gold yeah. which in reality is not really what happened it, it, the nobles did retreat, but they retreated because the disorganization of the Scottish army versus the advanced uh, tactics of the English army in, a, in an open field, they just, they just couldn't really live with it. And, and the English unleashed what's sort of their special weapon in medieval time, the longbows. Mm. Now, the Scots had developed this, this thing called a shiltron, which was a circular formation of pikes, which was designed to protect them from uh, heavy heavy horse charge by a cap from a cavalry charge and it was highly effective at doing that. But when the English saw that they had they had formed children's, 
the cavalry just stood back and the longbowmen came up into really quite close range. They just massacred the children. I mean, they, it, was, it was brutal. And are these the Welsh that are... The Welsh, the Welsh and, and English longbowmen, yeah. So would they have been, after Longshanks had kind of defeated the Welsh... Yes. Previously, yes. this is his yeah, yeah. dividend from that. Basically. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And the, and and the Lombo is is like the medieval equivalent of a machine gun. Like they and they just they they're brutally powerful. And and the the, the Scottish army falls into disarray. At, at which point, the Scottish nobles, who are horsemen, realize, okay, they have two thousand heavy horse. We have two hundred heavy horse, and probably their gear is probably better than ours as well so maybe let's just uh, get out of here and not all die and so I, the real in, reason they in left. the film after this battle obviously everyone's very sad and disappointed but does Wallace go on a psychotic revenge filled uh, adventure it's really, well, it's really well done in the movie where the he novel. goes into the guy's castle on a horse and kills him oh, in his yeah. bed brilliant it's really really well yeah. done uh, none of that's true <laughs> Um, he doesn't go on a psychotic revenge thing against the nobles. Realistically, in the context, he probably wouldn't have blamed nobles for pulling out of that battle because they were never winning that. It's just they were just never winning that. It's just zero chance. What actually was did was he uh, absconded to France. All right. Um, not in the film. No, but that is what you do in the situation. And the idea is he's gone to France and he's going to try and sort of rekindle the old alliance, which is the, the Scottish, Franco-Scottish alliance against the English. He's trying to get the French to send troops. He's like, please invade. Uh, you know, you need to take the heat off us. We've just, I've just lost my army and the nobles are still in disarray and the Bruce doesn't know if he wants to be king yet and we don't know what to do and blah, 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 blah. Um, so he's sort of pottering around um, France for a while. It doesn't go terribly well. The French sort of agree in principle, but... Uh, as we spoke about in other podcasts, they sort of had their own problems. Yeah. A <laughs> uh, little bit of disorganization there. The nobles aren't all getting on with each other. Does the King of France even rule France? Who knows? Like, I mean, it's just toss a coin at this point in history, <laughs> like whether or not he has any real power, you know? Um, so it doesn't go terribly well, well for Wallace. Um, so he he comes back uh, to Scotland and he continues his sort of guerrilla warfare sort of situation until basically he's captured. Um as they do show in the movie, he gets uh, he gets arrested um, and he gets brought to London. And but it, is it a piece of trickery that has him arrested? We don't know. Mm. The, truth. the truth is we don't know. It could well have been. Well, that's I, I feel like that's the, the Mel Gibson defense. Like, hey, we don't know. So uh, it probably happened like this. <laughs> I'm going to say this is the most dramatic way this could happen. Because in the film, uh, you know, Robert Bruce sets up a meeting and then Robert the Bruce's father... Who has leprosy? We yeah. I don't think we talked about this in uh, yeah Broking. that's yeah he yeah he didn't have leprosy anyway, no? no but it feels so specific that they he would had just... he had they say uh, look he was unwell for sure um in in the movie outlooking he just he dies from heartbreak basically he falls asleep he had hay fever Jacob <laughs> <laughs> bad case of it yeah. Robert de Bruce himself had syphilis mm. it's highly probable that his father had it too. Because um, it, it was just it was just rife in the medieval times, you know. Everyone just either had yeah, either had but that. You don't have it, you, you know. You either had that, you dysentery. You died of one of those things. If you if you were lucky enough to not die in a battle or from malnutrition or just you know living on bread. Yeah. Like so because yeah, in the film he has leprosy. It feels a bit like uh, a bit of an ugly equals evil thing that I yeah. feel like is a Mel Gibson trope to a certain extent. That sure. it's just like yeah, this. This goblin guy who lives there and gives his son advice, but it's bad advice, and and the you know the righteous son stands up to his father and tells him to fuck off. Basically, after this, that he, he banishes him, etc. And this is when he takes on. I will be the king, even though, as you said, yeah. it would all have been about opportunism, and, really. And, and, and it's interesting because Andrew McFadden, I think, is the actor's name, who plays Bruce in it. And I really like him in it, and that's that scene you're talking about with his father, and he, he's like, uh. Yeah, like he has it like a re- a really good emotional scene where where he sort of has come to realize, you know, Wallace is right and I should lead and I should I should you know, and he's like screaming, "I'm so would I! I would die for Scotland too!" All of this kind of stuff, you know. And it's it, I I really like it. It's just not true though. Like that's it's not really really the way it happened. In, in actuality, Bruce's father died and he had he had uh, he had knelt to the English king and Bruce says, "Right, well he's dead. I'm in charge now and we're gone for it." 
which is what happens in Outlaw King, which is more accurate on, on that point. The Bruce, Bruce is, is gets a bit of a character assassination in this movie, and it's I think to draw to make sure your attention is on Wallace on the on the folk hero rather than the man who becomes king of Scots, um, which is which is what happens in actuality. Wallace comes back. He's in. He's in. He comes back around 1304, I believe, and he is. He's captured, um, and he's hung, drawn, and quartered. And the movie, I think, does a good job of that scene. Now, did he shout freedom? I'm, I'm going to say no, because fair play to you if you have any voice at that point, uh, because those types of tortures are way more gruesome than the movie even implies. I mean, like he's disemboweled. Like it's it's yeah, absolutely and first- brutal. Like at, he was first dragged through the streets yeah. by horses, yeah. you know, and then he was disemboweled. Yeah, and then they cut off his, then they cut off his, uh, his uh, cock and balls. Yeah, you know, so like it was a rough torture, and then they cut up, you know, then they uh, hung drawn and quartered him. Yeah, you know, so it was just horrific, and it's weird because one of the criticisms I've seen about the film is Mel normally would love to show such torture in films. But on this occasion, he actually, you know, he, he held back. He could have shown it being a lot more brutal. Yeah, true. Um, just like, say, in The Passion of the Christ, you know. But he didn't do any of that in this occasion. So. I think he was working his way up to it, to be honest. Like, it, <laughs> because it's still like torture, like, I don't know, redemption, salvation through pain, this sort of thing. Very, uh, yeah. <laughs> Very Christian. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So it's still still a big theme of that, but but yeah. So he's he's captured, hung, drawn, and quartered. We don't know if he shouted. We don't like. It's a big thing in the movie that if he asks for mercy, they'll kill him outright or whatever. We don't know. I mean, yeah. I would suggest you at that point you can't speak. He's, you're function you're functionally dead. But what's interesting, like <laughs> on, just on the Bruce point, like you know, or oh, he betrays Scotland. Well, if that was the case, then why was the Bruce the guy who was named Guardian of Scotland after after Wallace died? Because that is what. Mm. Bruce became the guardian of Scotland, as as agreed to by the nobles. He became the guy. Uh, so if he, he if if he had betrayed the Scottish people, would they stand for that? I I, I don't really buy it, you know. And uh, by by account, by by records, and, and by account, the Bruce was was uh, among the common folk in Scotland was was really rather popular. I mean, he he would have been the popular choice among the people for king. Mm. Yeah, and despite I guess a lot of the inconsistencies we've already gone through. Uh, he he became a martyr, right, for the cause. Like he, sure. it was, he it was, and still is, in large part because of this movie. But uh, internationally, I mean, known as like yeah, uh, a symbol of uh, fighting against oppression, yeah. despite all the odds. Even if he just may have, maybe he didn't start out having his family killed. Maybe he just started out stealing beer. Uh, but still, like the end result, the story that they're building in Braveheart is still building to that reality. If yeah, that yeah, and and and. The movie is, it, yeah, so the movie is, is playing into the legend, but the legend is earned. It, it, the reality is, is earned. He did do some of the things, or, or he, did, he did some of the things the movie shows in, in some extent, to some extent, just not the way the movie shows it, if that makes sense. He wasn't quite as dashing and, and romantic a hero as the movie portrays, but is anyone, you know? And he died, so he was, he, he was 35, so, you know, put things in perspective. He was quite a young man. He got a lot done in those few years, and he died in 1305. Obviously, what happens after, you can kind of, it, it's the, the, set, the rise of the Bruce, really, isn't it? Yeah, so uh, the Bruce sort of takes, uh, it, it takes over f- as Guardian, but, I mean, we're, we're sort of into Outlaw King territory now because it's the, the Bruce, in the absence of there being other obvious leadership other than uh, uh, his rival Common who he kills in the church um, he, he's sort of the obvious leader and, and while, while this movie is trying to portray it as he doesn't really know what to do I'm, I'm not sure I'm not sure to what extent that's the truth I think it's probably more the case that his father had decided we weren't going to the family's not going to go for it but once the father is out of the picture because he dies then he's like yeah we'll have a go uh, Wallace's sort of uh, Wallace's um, popularity, uh, I can feel on that. Maybe there's a there's a line at the the very end of the movie of the of the Braveheart movie is uh, um, betrays the Bruce leading the Scots to victory over over the 
over over the, the English, and he has the line, "You bled with Wallace, now bleed with me," and he throws Wallace's sword. That didn't happen, <laughs> but like, but it's a nice thematic moment, and and uh, that battle was real, and and the Scots did win it, and it is what established Scottish Scotland's independence. What, what I would say is, and I've seen criticisms of that last scene, is that that like we can forgive Mel for making a great movie and ignoring history, okay, but. That particular scene at the end almost um, is Mel's way of saying, okay, everything that happened before is almost, is legitimate and it led in reality to this famous yeah. victory. Yeah. So if you didn't look into Scottish history or you didn't have an interest and it was just a pass, you watched the film, you would actually have no reason to doubt anything that Mel Gibson said. In relation to this film or yeah, anything that's absolutely. that's it and and that's a bit of a problem i think you know for sure it's not said based on a true story anyway but the way the film is set up with the opening in 1280 and the end showing uh the bruce having his glorious victory uh you know th- that that fact happened at the end that the bruce did have this famous victory but none of the other stuff <laughs> went anywhere near close. no uh, yeah exactly that's know. that's that's sort of the point and, it, and look i mean i mean look this is a this is a sort of a, a character piece about a culture about a Scottish culture hero. Um, so, to what level can you expect accuracy? Is a debate. But where where my sort of ire comes from is is that there's there's choices which must have been deliberate, which are just flagrantly inaccurate for seemingly no reason. Like uh, the things we've talked about, or anything else. Yeah, the thing like I mean, the the year you know, like it can't yeah. be twelve eighty. Like, it like. The audience don't care about the year, so why put the wrong year? <laughs> it just, it just for me, it's the blue, the wold. Yeah, like, that's what me, it's called, the face paint. Yeah, whoa, whoa, like that's, for me, that's flagrant because, like, it looks really cool. And any other depiction you'll see in a comic book about William Wallace or a video game that features the Scottish Wars, you know, they'll all have the blue paint now, and that's only because of Mel Gibson. Like that, that if you look into this anyway. Those blue uh, painted depictions of the Scots, that goes back to like a thousand years before at least, uh, which is depictions the Romans had of the people who lived in Scotland, the Picts at the time. Who, who, were, who, weren't, who weren't the same ethnic people no. as these Scots. No. Uh, well, they may have eventually married into, you know, but at the time, like this is extremely different. So there was no way that they were wearing blue paint on their face and this type of thing. And that for me just... There was, it was only really done for artistic effect, you know? He could have done something else that might have uh, rang true for that time period, you know? But to put the blue paint is really harking back to something that's literally a thousand years before. It, I saw it described it's a bit like the founding fathers of America with all their Republican values and all that went around in togas. Yeah, that, that, know, that's the that's the level of ridiculousness that is. You know, it it just doesn't make any sense. Quite aside, some association, but you're talking thousands of years. Quite aside you know? from the fact that like the, the kilts, like the the, the the kilt doesn't come into common use in Scotland for a couple of centuries later. I was gonna ask. It's much it Seems like a thing that's always been around, but yeah, no, mm. it's much, it's much, it's a much later thing. Um, now, were were the Picts wearing kilts, or were the old Celtic speaking peoples? Maybe, but Scots of this time. No, it's not accurate to say that Scots in an army would be running around. Well, that's what I was wondering. Would it? It's kind of like, uh, like Viking helmets, right? We know they don't have. You don't have horns on a helmet yeah. if you're going for a fight. But also, horns were religiously important. They mm. may have been like ceremonial helmets and that sort of yeah. thing. Maybe so. It's kind of hard to say. It was but a, apparently, it was a German, a, a, a British monarch of German descent. Who wanted to kind of endear? He had wrote. He had come over in the is it seventeenth century? I think mm-hmm. he had come to the throne of Britain, and he was going on a trip to Scotland, and he wanted to endear himself to the locals. So he decided to kind of um, get a suit made from and and a kilt to ta- uh, tailored it for himself. So when he did go on his big kind of jubilee style uh, walk through Edinburgh, that he would appear as a endear himself to the Scottish, you know, and he, this, this started a big kind of trend of people mm. wearing kilts again. Wow. You know? Okay. <laughs> um, Presum- presumably walking down the road in Scotland, which is called the Royal Mile, 
from the, from the castle where you would go if you wanted to buy a kilt, for example. There you go. Um, <laughs> and it's something that the British royals now do. Anytime they're, they spend time in Scotland, they're, they're quick to... They're quick so to it's marketing. Marketing. Basically. Yeah, but, it's, it, but as a cultural trend in Scotland, it's several centuries later. Mm. It's, uh, it's not... Certainly a Scottish standing army would not be, <laughs> would not be in kilts. It's just, it's just not the way they dressed. Um, and like I was saying earlier, they wouldn't have been notably different to their English counterparts in, in terms of their military dress, tactics, and weaponry. Yeah. We're, we're, I know we're getting very into it now, but would the kilts have been kind of more formal wear? Or like, because it's uh, these complicated patterns, I assume, and weaving, it wouldn't necessarily be available to your everyday man. No, ex- no exactly. So, so uh, uh, potentially more formal wear and more related to uh, specific clans. So there's such a thing as clan tartan, yeah, obviously. Yeah. Now, just to say on that, like the, the tartan that you most commonly see, um, uh, the darker one, the blue and Blue and green, that's the black watch. That's, that's to do with the military order. That's their formal wear. And then the red one is really common. That's the Scott clan. And that's, that's just a very famous Scottish clan. Um, so that most kilts that you'll see non-Scottish people wearing are those. But uh, traditional Scottish families, of whom there are records, will have, like my family have, family have Scottish tartan, like, for example, uh, because it's quite a common name in Scotland. Um, in the same way that, like, in Ireland, fishing families, you know, their jump, you know, the sweaters they the wear? The iron jumpers. The iron jumpers. Mm-hmm. They have f- uh, designs in them that are specific to that clan. Right, yeah. And that's yeah. what if someone's lost at sea or someone's, they can identify the body with it. Uh, okay, yeah, no, I was relating it to the folk costumes in Sweden uh, that I also think would have had more of a revival, right, in the last mm. few hundred years. It's very popular yeah. now. And it would have been the thing dating back, but not as far back as the events of Braveheart, where you, no one had the money to have something that fancy. Sure, of course. Like I would have let him get away with the kilts. Yeah. I wouldn't let him get away with the kilts <laughs> and the woad on the face. Not the woad. The woad is much take m- the piss smell. Yeah, the woad is much more egregious. Like, you that's... can push us real history guys a little bit, but not that far. Come on. Yeah. We only have so much patience. And Prima Noctis, Prima Noctis. Prima Noctis, this not... thing where the, lord, the local English lord can come in and demand to sleep with the wife. A newly married woman, like absolutely no historical uh, record of that. Like that's no. Yeah, it's a. That, that's something that's that's something that is added into the folk tales later in history to further demonize the English. It's yeah, not, it's not true. Like they didn't, they didn't. Do it. Yeah, because I was reading it as like a myth, but I think you know if you're Mel Gibson, eh, anything that's been sort of mentioned or yeah. anywhere where there's a maybe or potentially, you grab whatever. Of course, the best. Yeah, you want to de- you want to demonize the bad guys as much as possible in the mind of the audience, for sure. Yeah. Well, sure. Look, before we wrap up, any more additional inaccuracies we want to get into, uh, or just anything about the film in general? Look, I mean, from a point of view of military history, it's just, it, there, there's, I would say, nothing at all accurate about the movie. Nothing is accurate. The, the armor's not accurate, the weaponry's not accurate. Yeah, there's a few the things, like, in the battles where they are very smart because they make them ride at them, but then they pull up, uh, like, these that, pits that's a, or that, spikes that's or whatever. a reference to the Shiltrons. Now, the Shiltrons was a thing that was used, but they didn't look like that. That's not how they... They didn't just go, here's a big pike, as if the English had never seen a big pike. <laughs> it <laughs> does feel a bit like that. No <laughs> one's ever thought of sharpening yeah, a stick. This is what I'm getting back to. What one Scott sh- for five Englishmen. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's like this weird ratio that the Scots but are lads, what if we make here. our sticks longer? It's ridiculous. Like, that's... No. That's... that's no. That's just not what happened. That battle was won by using the terrain. And it was it was won by Wallace and Demore's tactics, and I would suggest probably more Demore than Wallace. The bridge that the, the bridge. bridge isn't in the film at all, right? No, it's just feels. Forgot the bridge. They yeah. just went, ah, oh, yeah, you just can't be putting a bridge in. Like apparently, that's, I, mean, I mean, look, I, I get that maybe it's difficult to film, but like, yeah, it like battles don't happen like that. There's also a scene; it might even be the same one where there's a bunch of Irish troops and the, oh, they were like rushing at each King other, Edward and then like, says, hey, how you doing? Yeah, King Edward says like, send the Irish in. You know, and the, and the Irish just go on this big charge against the Scots, and they all look the same because they're Irish and the Scots, so of course they look the same. Uh, which, in fairness, you'd be hard pressed to tell a, a crowd of Scots from a crowd of Irish. You know, in, in all you seriousness, would. we are very, very similar people. Um, and they, they, they charge together, and then they just sort of stop, and they're all high fiving and hugging each other and shaking hands and going, "Yeah, how are you? How are you getting on?" As if they're their cousins that they hadn't seen since the since the grandmother's funeral. 
And uh, none of that happened either. That's just absolutely were the, not true. Were the, there Irish people involved in the conflict on either side? Uh, I mean... It, maybe uh, individually. Yeah. But yeah, maybe not I, in large scale. Irish conscripts into the into English armies. Um, the war that carries on after the events of this movie and after the events of Outlaw King, um, Robert the Bruce's brother, Edward the Bruce, um, took part of the Scottish army and invaded Ireland. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, this is an outlooking. He kind of has refuge on one of the islands yeah, going into the, Ireland. The Bruce's wife is Irish. Yeah. And there's a bit of a foreshadowing that like, yeah. might need to come back here. Yeah. <laughs> and in reality, Edward the Bruce invaded Ireland and um, sort of sort of rallied a number of the clan leaders in the north of Ireland to the extent that he, they crowned him uh, High King of Ireland. So you've got a Bruce as the King of Scotland and a Bruce is uh, claiming to be the King of Ireland. Now, it's important to say, most of Ireland doesn't accept this guy, that he is the High King, but enough of the Northern Lords do, and he carries out a fairly terrible campaign in Ireland where there's a, there's, they get, they are, his army is hit with dysentery and there's a famine, and it goes really badly. Tends and, to happen when you come to Ireland. Yeah, it, 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 it goes <laughs> really ages. badly for Edward the Bruce, but the idea was that they were, the Bruce were trying to open a second front against, against, the, against English control in Ireland, and they figured there's enough support in Ireland for us. And and they and they they probably would have been right. Like, yeah. But an army rode out of Dublin and just smashed Edward Bruce, and that was the end of that. You know. Were the Irish there? No. Were they involved later on? Yes. Mm. Put it like it. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, it's uh, definitely an interesting one to talk about because Braveheart would be like a real cultural touchstone in a lot of ways, right? Like it, we we can sit here and talk about you know the historical inaccuracies nitpicks to an extent but it's also like if something becomes this big of a cultural force we could we could talk for ages about the effect on tourism like we're saying mm. even in ireland like oh, the place it would have been filmed but in scotland in general interest in scottish culture uh, interest in the independence movement in scotland mm. uh the way this is you know been part of fueling that he's an he's an absolute icon i mean they yeah. have a sword in edinburgh castle right. well, it's a sword like you can go and look at it like Wait, you mean Wallace's real sword, not from the movie, or I, I don't, I can't remember if it's a real sword or it's one from the movie. If it's not from the movie, it's it looks Claymore. Like it is. It's yeah, Claymore. Yeah, yeah, Claymore. Yeah, Claymore yeah, yeah. is a the, big sword. The people yeah. interested in military now, Claymore is a mine, but it's named after uh, a big broad sword. That Clive Moore. Yeah, big sword in yeah. Irish or, or Scottish. It's a, yeah, it's a big sword that Scots or Irish would have used at the period. Yeah, two hander. And as we always say, like the effect on cinema and filmmaking in general like mm. any really successful historical film we usually applaud right like we've talked yeah. about gladiator and wishing for the same kind of success for the last duel for example um so yeah <laughs> I, I, I just think like for this um we don't get we maybe don't get a movie like gladiator if braveheart isn't successful you know i think i know it's few years later but realistically gladiator probably would have went into production like three years later maybe mm. um i think we don't get uh um uh, a lot of mel gibson's other movies but we don't get the interest in historical movies generally if there isn't a big hit somewhere. everything is harking back to in general when it comes to historical movies probably you can divide it up everything's har- harking back to either gladiator mm. or braveheart maybe. yeah you know, in the last thirty years, yeah, so, for sure. You know what I mean? I, I, but I think you see it in, in cinema generally, don't you? I mean, like in the in the early fifties, there's a there's like a big hit, a western, and then you get twenty years of western movies, yeah, or, or like um, you know, like uh, Iron, Iron Man. Iron Man does really well in two thousand and eight, and now you have the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's the same sort of genre. It's the, the success breeds. It's the time of that genre. I know. I know. I mean, I know it's egregious now with <laughs> the number of superhero movies, but you get the point. And historical movies maybe haven't quite had the moment, and maybe it's because there just isn't as many good ones in, in quick succession. But Braveheart, on the whole, it's a good movie, uh, but in terms of historical accuracy, it's criminal. It's really quite bad. Yeah, and we see that as a theme for the more successful the movie, the less historically accurate, yeah. and vice versa. Yeah, which is interesting. Which is sad, Imagine if Mel Gibson made The Last Jewel. That would have been an interesting director. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It would have been no folks given for accuracy there, I think. <laughs> but Gladiator and, and Braveheart are both like in the genre of epic, like historical Absolutely. fantasy, right? Yeah, and that's yeah. kind of its own thing. And then things set in a historical era, whether we talk about uh, Master and Commander, which mm-hmm. is a smaller story, right, mm-hmm. set on a ship. 
um, or something like The Last Duel, which while it has epic elements, it's still trying to tell a different kind of story. More intimate story, though, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so I, with Westerns and everything, I, I could talk about genre development for a long time, but usually something at the start of a big trend like that establishes the baseline of so like the what, rules of it, like the, the rules language of it. Of it yeah. And then over time, those become more and more subverted as people become accustomed to them. We right. sure change them up. Um, but historical movies, they're, they've never really had enough moment. momentum on their own. It's always been like, we're going to try really hard on making one and hopefully that one works. And it's often, it's often the unexpected ones that become successful. And it's often to do with like less historically accurate. Right, 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 <laughs> then right, right. like focusing on the story, make something good there, like Braveheart. Uh, it's definitely a very interesting thing to talk about for us talking about historical movies and television, for sure. Do a Patreon on that one. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, a lot of pushing that. <laughs> um, any sources or books or anything we want to point people towards? Oh, God, like, look, if you just if you just went on on, on like any bookshop website and just typed in William Wallace, there is a raft of of, uh, of biographies of the guy. I, I'll I'll have uh, I'll have a look at my own bookshelf and maybe maybe link some in the show notes later. But this is not a character who you would ha- who you would struggle to find literature on. Um, the only thing about him is, uh, like I was mentioning earlier, the primary sources for Wallace are pretty light. Like I was saying, a lot of it is based on uh, a poem from a couple of centuries later, and where he famously was seven foot tall. Yeah, he was seven feet tall. Fireballs coming over there. Yeah, and they make a joke yeah. of it in the movie, and that is what they're referencing. Like in Blind Harry's story, is seven feet tall, and and uh, but that's that's a common trope among folk here. But I mean, the, the the legend of this guy is like Robin Hood. I mean, it doesn't bear that much re- to reality, you know. So if you were to get a biography of him, some there there will be some level of speculative punts about what they think he might be like, rather than yeah, like he's not as well documented as Robert the Bruce, say for example, because he wasn't a king, you know. Um, so reader beware, but there's <laughs> there's plenty of material out there on him, yeah. Yeah, sounds good. Um, yeah, a lot to dig into if you're so inclined. But I hope this has at least dissuaded some of our uh, some of our less than uh, accurate concepts that we've taken from this film over time, and then sort of re- reestablished the baseline a little bit of what actually did happen. There was more inaccuracies in this film than probably in the ten last films we did. You know? uh, you probably, sorry yeah. if this was yeah. a list of stuff that <laughs> Mel Gibson did wrong. <laughs> And also to the to our to the listeners who have been like, why haven't you done Braveheart yet? Right, we've done it now. Okay? We've done it. <laughs> All right, so it's done now. That's it. Okay, I'm not doing it again. That's it. You can all unsubscribe. We're definitely not doing that weird sequel. No, it came out a couple of years <laughs> no. ago. Yeah. I'm finished with the Scottish War of Independence now. We're done. Yeah. Like. <laughs> Yeah, unless you join the Patreon. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, as always, check out our other episodes. They're available on the feed or at showswhatyouknow.com. Um, reviews are much appreciated on Apple Podcasts. And if you've already left a review, please do tell a friend or tweet about the show. Uh, you can find us at real underscore history on Twitter. And uh, yeah, beyond that, I think that's uh, it. That's the end of the reel. Cheers. Thanks a million. Thanks a million.